0: Answer to prayer, long deferred, and other practical truth, dealing with melancholy of the mind, continued. Number seven. Do not express much surprise or wonder at anything which melancholy persons say or do. What will not they say who are in despair of God's mercy? What will not they do who think themselves lost forever? You know that even such a man as Job cursed his days so that the Lord charged him with darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Do not wonder that they give expression to bitter complaints. The tongue will always be speaking of the aching tooth. Their soul is sore vexed. And although they get no good by complaining, yet they cannot but complain to find themselves in such a doleful case. And they can say with David, I am weary with my groaning all the night, make I my bed to swim i water my couch with my tears. Yet they cannot forbear to groan and weep more until their very eyes are be consumed with grief. Let no sharp words of theirs provoke you to talk sharply to them. Sick people are apt to be peevish, and it would be a great weakness in you not to bear with them when you see that a long and sore disease has deprived them of their former good temper. Number eight, do not tell them any frightful stories nor recount to them the sad disasters which have overtaken others. Their hearts already meditate terror, and by every alarming thing of which they hear they are more terrified, and their disordered imagination is prepared to seize upon every frightful image which is presented. The hearing of sad things always causes them more violent agitations, yet you must avoid merriment and levity in their presence, for this would lead them to think that you have no sympathy with them nor concern for them. A mixture of gravity with affableness will best suit them. And if I might advise, I would counsel parents not to put their children who are naturally inclined to melancholy to learning or to any employment which requires much study, lest they should be at length preyed upon by their own thoughts. Do not, however, think it needless to talk to them, number nine, but do not speak as if you thought their disease would be of long continuance, for this is a prospect which appears most gloomy to the melancholy. Rather, encourage them to hope for speedy deliverance. Endeavor to revive their spirits by declaring that God can give them relief in a moment, and that He has often done so with others, that He can quickly heal their disease and cause His amiable and reconciled face to shine upon them. For a moment the narrator would like to address those who are listening to this, who fear that they may have committed an unpardonable sin, the sin unto death, or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and think they are beyond the reach of mercy and therefore have given over to despair, and fear that nothing remains for them but the fearful looking forward of fiery indignation, Hebrews 10. The following account is taken from a book, Sons of God, by Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Let me give one illustration of this manner from my own experience some 25 years ago. I was working in my study one morning when I was told that there was a man at the door who was very anxious to see me. On going to the door, I found there a man in a state of great agitation who said, My father is sitting in that car out there, and he is in a desperate state. He said that his father had just come out of a mental nursing home where he had been for six weeks, and he pleaded with me to see him. The poor man was brought into my room. His hair was disheveled, and he had not shaved for days. He was a big, tall, powerful man, indeed almost alarming in appearance. He was desperate, frantic, and almost tearing his hair out. This was his story. He had been converted in a very dramatic manner in the Welsh revival of 1904 and 5. His whole life had been changed. He had been delivered from drunkenness and had become a wonderful Christian man. But partly as a result of that change, he began to prosper in business, and gradually the devil, seeing his opportunity, tempted him, And he had been backsliding. The first sign of decline was worldliness. Then he had taken to drink, and had ceased to go to his place of worship. In other words, he had gone back in his practice and conduct to the life of the world, and he had been doing this for several years. Suddenly, without any apparent reason or explanation, he had awakened to the seriousness of his backsliding. But at this point the devil came in and said to him, Oh, well, your case is now hopeless. You were converted in 1904. But before that time, you'd been an unbeliever. You were ignorant. You knew nothing. Now you have sinned against the light and against the Holy Ghost. There is no forgiveness for you. He believed this, and soon he became desperate. They called in his doctor who gave him sedatives, but without any effect. They called in other doctors who prescribed more sedatives, still with no effect. Then they called in a mental expert who immediately diagnosed, as much men always do, religious mania. There are many people in mental institutions who should not be there at all. If you show any unusual concern about your soul, you are standing in great risk of being put into a mental institution as a case of religious mania. The man became a voluntary patient in a nursing home. and There they treated him with various drugs for six weeks, but far from getting better, he continued to get worse. Finally, he insisted on going home, and now he was sitting in my study. Indeed, he was not sitting. He was pacing up and down, tearing his hair, desperate and violent. I tried to pacify him a little, first of all, and got him to sit down. Then, after hearing the story, I began quoting and expounding scripture to him. I asked him to give me one scripture which proved that a Christian man who fell into sin could never be forgiven again. I explained to him that that was not the sin against the Holy Ghost. A man who is committed to sin against the Holy Ghost is not concerned about forgiveness. He ridicules the grace of God and the gospel. So this man's very concern about forgiveness and his grief because he has let down his Savior was a proof that it did not apply to him. I kept on and on. This continued for some 40 minutes. I did nothing but quote the scriptures. Eventually the man became quiet and peaceful. But I was not satisfied until I got him to thank God and to praise God and had seen him smile. Then I told him to be prepared for further onslaughts. I warned him that the devil would certainly not give up at all easily. He would come back. But all he, the sufferer, had to do was to quote the scriptures. I had quoted to him. I knew for certain that I would see him again, and he returned in about a week, if I remember rightly. Once more he was desperate and violent, but it only took me some twenty minutes this time to pacify him and to make him praise God. Again, I did nothing but quote scripture. This process had to be repeated some two or three times, and eventually he was entirely delivered and resumed an active Christian life." Well, I won't leave you there. I'll quote again from another author, Arthur W. Pink. A word now unto those with tender consciences that fear they may have committed sin for which there is no forgiveness. The trembling and contrite sinner is the farthest from it. There is not one instance recorded in Scripture where any who was guilty of the great transgression and had been given up by God to inevitable destruction ever repented of his sins or sought God's mercy in Christ. Instead, they all continue obstinate and defiant, the implacable enemies of Christ and his ways unto the end. Will there be in the heart any sincere valuing of God's approbation, any real sense of his holiness, which deters from trifling with him, any genuine purpose to turn unto him and submit to his requirements, any true fearing of his wrath, that soul has not been abandoned by him if you have a deep desire to obtain an interest in Christ or become a better Christian, if you are deeply troubled over sin, if your heart grieves over its hardness, if you yearn and pray for more tenderness of conscience, more yieldedness of will, more love and obedience to Christ, then you have no cause to suspect that you have committed the unpardonable sin. End quote. I won't even stop there. Now I turn to strong systematic theology, dealing with the sin of final obduracy. The sin against the Holy Spirit is not to be regarded simply as an isolated act, but also as the external symptom of a heart so radically and finally set against God that no power which God can consistently use will ever save it. This sin, therefore, can only be the culmination of a long course of self hardening and self-depraving. He who has committed it must be either profoundly indifferent to his own condition or actively and bitterly hostile to God, so that anxiety or fear on account of one's condition is evidence that it has not been committed. The sin against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven simply because the soul that has committed it has ceased to be receptive of divine influence, even when those influences are exerted in the utmost strength which God has seen fit to employ in His spiritual administration. Quote. Already I have quoted the following quotation because it is taken from Archibald Alexander's practical truth, Sinners Welcome to Christ. But I will read it again because it deals with this subject. But is there not one sin which never has pardon neither in this world nor in that which is to come? There is. But no one who has committed that sin ever desires to come to Christ, and even that sin would not be unpardonable if the sinner who is burdened with its guilt should come to him. It is not unpardonable because the blood of Christ has not adequate efficacy to remove it, but because the miserable blasphemer is abandoned by the Spirit of God to his own malignity, and therefore never does nor can desire to believe on Christ. But do you ask whether a man may not outlive his day of grace and be given over to judicial blindness before life is ended? Undoubtedly he may. But as I said before, such a one, I believe, is never found inquiring what he must do to be saved. The devil often tempts aged sinners and others too to believe that it is now too late for them to repent, that the time of their visitation has gone by, and that there is no hope for them, and many miserable souls are long entangled in the snare. He may even quote Scripture to prove that there is a boundary which when passed, all hope of salvation is to be relinquished. But as long as we are in the body, we have the overtures of mercy made to us by the authority of God. And whether we be young or old, he that cometh, Christ has declared, shall not be cast out. Take him at his word. Venture on him. End quote. Next I quote from the Puritan William Gurnall from his book The Christian in Complete Armor. Quote, Satan perplexes the tender consciences of doubting Christians with obscure scriptures, whose sense lies too deep for the weak and distempered judgments readily to find out. And with these he hampers poor souls exceedingly. Indeed, as melancholy men delight in melancholy walks, so doubting souls most frequent such places of scripture in their musing thoughts as increase their doubts. How many have I known that have looked so long on those difficult places? Hebrews six six, Hebrew ten twenty six, which pass the understanding as a swift stream, the eye, so that the sense is not perceived without great observation, till their heads have turned round, and they at last, not able to untie the difficulties, have fallen down in despairing and thoughts and words of their own condition, crying out, Oh, they have sinned against the knowledge of the truth, and therefore no mercy remains for them now. If they would have refreshed their understandings by looking off these places whose engraving is too curious to be long poured on by a weak eye, they might have found that in other scriptures plainly expressed, which would have enabled them, as through a glass, more safely to have viewed these. Therefore, Christian, keep the plains. Thou mayest be sure it is thine enemy that gives thee such stones to break thy teeth, when thy condition calls rather for bread and wine. Such scriptures I mean as are most apt to nourish thy face and cheer thy drooping spirit. When thou meetest such plain scriptures which speak to thy case, go over where it is fordable, and do not venture beyond thy depth. Art thou afraid because thou hast sinned since the knowledge of the truth, and that therefore no sacrifice remains for thee? See David and Peter's case, how it patterns thine, and is left upon record that their recovery may be a key in thine hand to open such places as these. Mayest thou not safely conclude from these, that this is not their meaning, that none can be saved that sin after knowledge? Indeed, in both those places, it is neither meant of the falls of such as ever had true grace, nor of falling away in some particular acts of sin, but of a total universal falling away from the faith, the doctrine of it as well as seeming practice of it. Now, if the root of the matter were ever in thee, other scriptures will first comfort thee against those particular apostasies into which thou hast relapsed, by sweet promises inviting such to return and giving precedence of saints who have had peace spoken to them after such folly, and also they will satisfy thee against the other by giving full security to thy faith that thy little grace shall not die, be an immortal, though not in its proper essence, because but a creature, yet by covenant as it is a child of promise." In quote. I quote next from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, from his sermon, A Lecture for Little Faith. If you meet Little Faith, he sometimes is afraid of hell, very often afraid that the wrath of God abideth on him. He will tell you that the country on the other side of the flood can never belong to a worm-soul basis. He... Sometimes it is because he feels himself so unworthy. Another time it is because the things of God are too good to be true, he says, or he cannot think that they can be true to such an one as he is. Sometimes he is afraid he is not elect. Another time he fears that he has not been called aright, that he has not come to Christ aright. Another time his fear is that he is not able to hold on to the end, that he shall not be able to persevere. And if you kill a thousand of his fears, he is sure to have another host by tomorrow, for unbelief is one of those things that you cannot destroy. It has, says Bunny, in as many lives as a cat. You may kill it over and over, but still it lives. It is one of those ill weeds that sleep in the soil even after it has been burned. and only needs a little encouragement to grow again. Poor little faith can scarcely look at the sun. He very seldom sees the light. He gropes in the valley. And while all is safe, he always thinks himself unsafe. This is one of the disadvantages of little faith, end quote. Now I will return to Archibald Alexander's Practical Truths from Thoughts on Religious Experience, and for those who are still distressed in mind, I recommend listening to a set of tapes narrated called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners by the Puritan John Bunyan, available at the Chapel Library. Number 10, Dealing with the Melancholy. It will be useful to tell them of others who have been in the same state of suffering and yet have been delivered. It is indeed true that they who are distressed by such a load of grief are with difficulty persuaded that any were ever in such a condition as they are. They think themselves to be more wicked than Cain or Judas, and view their own case to be entirely singular. It will therefore be important to relate real cases of deliverance from similar distress and darkness. Several such cases have been known to me as that of Mr. Rosewell, and also Mr. Porter, Both ministers of the gospel. The latter was six years under the pressure of melancholy. Yet both these experienced complete deliverance and afterwards rejoiced in the light of God's countenance. I myself was near two years in great pain of body and greater pain of soul, without any prospect of peace or help. And yet God recovered me with His sovereign grace and mercy. Robert Bruce, fifteen fifty four to sixteen thirty one, minister in Edinburgh, was twenty years in terrors of conscience and yet delivered afterwards. And so, of many others who, after a dark and stormy night, were blessed with the cheerful light of returning day. John Fox, in his Book of Martyrs, gives an account of a certain John Glover, who was worn and consumed with inward trouble for five years, so that he had no comfort in his food, nor in his sleep, nor in any enjoyment of life. He was so perplexed as if he had been in the deepest pit of hell. And yet, this good servant of God, after all these horrid temptations and buffetings of Satan, was delivered from all his trouble. And the effect was such a degree of mortification of sin that He appeared as one already in heaven. Number 11. The next thing which you are to do for your melancholy friends is to pray for them. As they have no light and composure to pray for themselves, let your eyes weep for them in secret, and there let your souls melt in fervent holy prayers. You know that none but God alone can help them Mr. Peacock said to John Dodd and his other friends, Take not the name of God in vain by praying for such a reprobate. Mr. Dodd replied, If God stir up your friends to pray for you, he will stir up himself to hear their prayers. You ought to consider that nothing but prayer can do them good. It is an obstinate disease that nothing else will overcome. Those who can cure themselves by resorting to wine and company were never under this disease. Number twelve, not only pray for them yourself, but engage other Christian friends also to pray for them. When many good people join their requests together, their cry is more acceptable and prevalent. When the church united in prayer for Peter in chains, he was soon delivered, and in the very time of their prayers. All believers have, through Christ, a great interest in heaven, and the Father is willing to grant what they ununitedly and importunately ask in the name of His dear Son. I myself have been greatly helped by the prayers of others, and I heartily thank all those, especially, who set apart particular days to remember at the throne of grace my distressed condition. Blessed be God that He did not turn away His mercy from me, nor turn a deaf ear to their supplications. Number thirteen, put your poor afflicted friends in mind continually of the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. Often impress upon their minds that He is merciful and gracious. That as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far as his thoughts above their thoughts, his thoughts of mercy above their self-condemning guilty thoughts, teach them as much as you can to look unto God by the great mediator for grace and strength, and not too much to pour over their own souls where there is so much darkness and unbelief. And turn away their thoughts from the decrees of God. Show them what great sinners God has pardoned and encourage them to believe and to hope for mercy. When Mrs. Drake was in her deplorable state of darkness, she would send a description of her case to distinguished ministers, concealing her name, to know whether such a creature without faith, hope, or love to God or man, hard-hearted, without natural affection, who had resisted and abused all means, could have any hope of going to heaven. Their answer was that such like and much worse might, by the mercy of God, be received into favor, converted and saved, which did much allay her trouble." For, she said, the fountain of all my misery has been that I sought in the law what I should have found in the gospel, and for that in myself which only is to be found in Christ. From my own experience, I can testify, says Mr. Rogers, that the mild and gentle way of dealing with such is the best. End quote. A volume might be written on the subject of religious melancholy, and such a volume is much needed, but it would be difficult to find a person qualified for the undertaken. We have some books written by Pius Casuas, and the subject is handled in medical treatises on insanity, but to do it justice, physiological knowledge must be combined with an accurate acquaintance with the experience of Christians. Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy is one of the strangest books I ever read. For curious learning and classical quotations it cannot be surpassed, and there is much originality of remark and frequent strokes of wit in the work, but very little valuable information on the subject on which it treats. The author seems to have been himself troubled with fits of melancholy, and enjoying much learned leisure, amused his melancholy hours by searching after and heaping up much learning out of the common track. The spiritual physician who has the cure of diseased souls takes much less pain to inquire minutely and exactly into the malady of his patients than is observable in physicians of the body. I've often admired the alacrity and perseverance with which medical students attend upon anatomical and physiological lectures, although often the exhibitions are extremely repulsive to our natural feelings. The patience and ingenuity with which the men of this profession make experiments are highly worthy of imitation. Many of our young preachers, when they go forth on their important errand, are poorly qualified to direct a doubting conscience or to administer safe consolation to these troubled in spirit. And in modern preaching there is little account made of the various distressing cases of deep affliction under which many serious persons are suffering. If we want counsel on subjects of this kind, we must go back to the old writers. But as there is now small demand for such works, they are fast sinking into oblivion. Their place is not likely to be supplied by any works which the prolific press now pours forth. It is, however, a pleasing circumstance that the writings of so many of our old English divines have recently been reprinted in London, but still many valuable treatises are destined to oblivion. Well, Alexander wrote that in 1840, and in 1982 there has been a book written called The Mass of Melancholy by John White. And it is available today by the InterVarsity Press. And I'd like to read the first chapter for those who are buffeted by the storms and of the devil and given over to melancholy. I vividly recall how she stood in one corner of my office, half turned to me, half turned to the wall. A thin little 60-year-old lady as still as stone, silent. Her family said she had scarcely spoken for days and that she had not eaten for weeks. She was dressed in black and gray. Very gently, I encouraged her to speak. Eventually, she did, but in a voice so low that I had to strain my ears to catch the words that crept from between her lips. I'm going to die. I deserve to die. God is punishing me. We have no money. My husband is bankrupt. He's trying to poison me. They all are. Her husband was not bankrupt. But why? Because I'm wicked. She still would not look at me. I'd like to help you. No, Dr. White, you'd poison me too. Surely you know me better than that. But I have to be poisoned. I'm bad. Too bad to be forgiven. God has forsaken me. I'm too wicked. From that point on, she remained silent and remote. She would not eat. She would not drink. Skin hung dryly and loosely from her tiny frame. We could, we could have forced fed her by inserting a nasal gastric tube, but she would have pulled it out. We could have given her intravenous fluids, but she would have torn them out too unless we bound her helplessly. And even then I believe she would have died. Five weeks later, after four electric shock treatments and with the help of medication, she had gradually returned to her usual self, energetic, cheerful, busy, and full of talk about the joy of the Lord. She had regained 10 of the 30 pounds she lost during her depressive illness and was full of plans for the future. She ate well, slept well, and had the energy she needed. Scenario 2. Troubled for weeks One of my sons, a 22-year-old, had been looking listless and troubled for weeks. He was sleeping poorly and seemed to be losing weight. One day he called my office from home. "'I want to talk to you, Dad.' "'Sure, when?' "'As soon as you have an hour.' "'No rush.' His voice was flat, but I thought I detected an edge to it. "'What about tonight?' "'I'd like to see you in your office.' "'In my office?' "'That was a new one. "'We set an hour that suited us both.' He looked tense when he arrived and sat stiffly in his chair. He said he didn't know where to begin, but once he got started, the words poured in a steady stream. An hour or so later, he was smiling, leaning back, relaxed with his legs stretched out in front of him. "'You have no idea how glad I am I came,' he said quietly.' That evening, my wife commented, he came back like he was walking on air. I'm so glad, whatever it was, that he talked it out with you. Scenario number three. What about forgiveness? He was a 40-year-old bachelor who had already spent several weeks on the psychiatric ward. He believed he had cancer and that we were all lying to him when we told him he showed no evidence of it. He had no energy and no appetite, and he couldn't sleep. He was given antipsychotic pills, mood-elevating pills, and 10 electroconvulsive treatments. Result? No change. I had him in my office to try to get a better handle on what could be wrong. As he talked about earlier years in his life, two things seemed to trouble him. He had drunk a bottle of beer several years before when his doctor had told him not to. More significantly, he had avoided enlisting in World War II and felt bad that some of his friends had died in Europe. Curiously, he felt equally bad about both his sins. As he talked, something mysterious happened. An invisible door swung open between us so that our naked spirits faced each other. What about forgiveness, I asked him. I want it so bad. What's your religion? Russian Orthodox. And what does your priest say about how you can be forgiven? He doesn't talk too much. We go to confession. And what does that do? I don't often go. I grope for words. But if you do go, why would God forgive you? Because Christ died. He shed blood. Saul? But I'm too bad for that. Unaccountably, I grew angry. No logical reason. It's just happened. What do you mean you're too bad? His voice was rising like my own. I don't deserve ever to be forgiven. You're darn right you don't. He looked up at me surprised. I can't be a hypocrite. I've got to make amends. It may be hard to believe, but I found my anger increasing. And who do you think you are to say Christ's death was not enough for you? Who are you to feel that you must add your miserable pittance to the great gift God offers you? Is his sacrifice not good enough for the likes of you? We continued to stare at each other, and suddenly he began both to cry and to pray at once. I wish I could remember his exact words. There's something indescribably refreshing about the first real prayer a man prays, especially when he doesn't know proper prayer talk. As nearly as I can recall, he said something like this, God, I didn't know. I'm real sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. More sobs, tears, runny nose. I passed him a box of Kleenex. God, thank you. It's amazing. I didn't. I didn't did know it worked like that. I, I thought, but but God, I didn't. I don't know much. Gee, God, I don't know how to say it. Thank you. Thanks an awful lot. Gee, God, thank you. I prayed my normal fluency a little hampered by his emotion, while he mopped up his face with Kleenex. His eyes were shining, and he shook my hand. Thanks, Doc. Thanks a lot. How come nobody ever told me before? We cut out all the medication. During the following week, I deliberately refrained from doing more than bid him, good morning, how are you, each day. I wanted to let others record his progress, and they did. The notes on his chart read, remarkable improvement, no longer seems depressed, paranoid ideation not expressed, making realistic plans for future. Then one day he said, Doc, I know you're busy, but I just got to talk to you. As soon as he sat down, he started... I don't know how to say it, Doc, but it's like I've been blind all my life, and now well, well, now I can see. He never read a Bible, never sung an evangelical hymn. He didn't know he was quoting. Carefully, I checked his mental status as we talked. No depression, no sign of mania. Paranoid thinking, nihilistic delusions, only the barest trace. He was practically made whole. Scenario four, needing a workout. Henry Gunther came round to my office just before noon. Ready for the why today, John? Oh, I don't know. I'm tired, Henry, listless, can't seem to get anything done, sort of depressed. Henry and I used to run around the track for a mile or so and then swam a number of laps each day. Come on, you need to get out of this place for a while. Forty-five minutes later, steam shampooed and showered. I rubbed my tingling skin with the abundance of white towels the YMCA supplies for its health club members. Then I sat to relax a moment or two in front of my locker before the luxury of getting dressed slowly. I was a new man. Mentally, I thank God for Henry, who doggedly would drag me to the Y each lunchtime. Defying Definition I have several reasons for sketching these four scenarios. Each picture has to do with depression. But clearly, not all the depressions are the same in quantity, nor even in quality. My morning blues in my office were not to be compared with the torture oppressing the lady who stood in the corner of that same office some weeks before. My mood was depressed, but I was not sick in any sense. A good physical workout, the easy camaraderie of the health club, cleared it away as the sun clears morning myth. Neither my son nor the lady I first mentioned, nor even the man who found forgiveness, would have been uplifted by sweating and puffing around the track, or by, by filling the needling of high-pressure shower, massaging their muscles. Whether a good mood, a malady, a madness, or a spiritual bondage, each one of our four conditions could be called depression yet each differed from the other. Therefore, at some time, we are going to have to attempt to define the word depression. For the moment, however, we will let it pass. As early as 1917, Sigmund Freud wrote, Even in descriptive psychiatry, the definition of melancholia is uncertain. It takes on various clinical forms, some of them suggesting somatic rather than psychogenic affections that do not seem definitely to warrant reduction to a unit. End quote. It is a pity many of his psychoanalytic followers failed to pay heed to his words. I don't want to begin by dodging an ideological battle, but I cannot stress the differences too much. Counselors who try to help depressed people and authors who write books about the subject generally oversimplify the issue. Depression has many faces. It cannot be relieved on the basis of one simple formula, arising as it does by numerous and complex mechanisms, and plummeting sometimes to depth where its victims are beyond the reach of verbal communication. There are mysteries about it which remain unsolved. No one theoretical framework is adequate to describe it. I hesitate to write about it because many of my professional colleagues hold rigidly to exclusive, often dogmatic and contradictory theories about it. Psychiatrists, Psychiatrist. psychologists, social workers, spiritual counselors, and a host of other would-be helpers despise one another's viewpoint. They cannot communicate, nor do they seem to wish to. Each school has its own technical terms and its own model, so that intelligent discussion is hampered both by needless indignation and by semantic confusion. The very language we use is different so that by creating new realities with new words, other realities are meaningless to us. I would like to evade controversy altogether, proceeding directly to descriptions of what I call the many mass of melancholy and to suggest methods of restoring its victims. But I must be honest about my presuppositions and my philosophical and scientific reasoning. I shall have to discuss the question of whether depression or some varieties of it constitute illness in any sense or whether they are better regarded as forms of behavior or even of communication. But if the question of illness arises, we shall have to face a question as illness of what? Of body? Of mind? Of spirit? If it is an illness of mind, we must ask, what is mine? The fact is that no single theory, however carefully applied, alleviates every depression. Yet instead of admitting that our theory may not always be appropriate, we blame the depressed person. He is uncooperative, lacks motivation, or is incapable of insight. She may be labeled immature or manipulative or be accused of playing games. Sometimes we apply such labels accurately, At other times we see people through the spectacles of our theoretical prejudice. It is easier to blame the client and keep our theory intact. Pastors and religious counselors have their own ways of doing the same thing. The words they use may be different, but they are words that cast a blame on the depressed person who is described as lacking in faith, full of self-pity, unwilling to rejoice in the Lord, giving place to the devil, or needing a kick in the pan. Sometimes the pastor is right, but there are other times when the real problem lies in the pastor's inadequate understanding. Fortunately, the late 70s were characterized by attempts to build bridges between the principal theories. Leading thinkers from different schools with a new humility and a new curiosity have been acknowledging not only that their points of view are only partially true, but also that other models have merits too. We often remind physicians that the patient is more important than the theory, and surgeons that the operations is not successful if the patient dies. I, too, have my biases and must be open to correction, but my main concern is for depressed people. Let us beware lest they become the victims of our incompetence and conceit. I grow saddened and sometimes bitter when I think of people who suffer needlessly when help is at hand. I cannot blame those whose pride and bigotry create needless suffering in depressed people. I, too, often have been bigoted and proud, Still less can my rage serve any use when I think of the millions who do not even seek help. So I have chosen to channel bitterness into the kind of book which I hope may result in better communication among professionals and more effective relief for some of the sufferers. Chapter 2 of this book is called Sin, Disease, and the Devil. The mentally ill have always been with us to be feared, marveled at, laughed at, pitied, or tortured but all too seldom cured. Their existence shakes us to the core of our being, for they make us painfully aware that sanity is a fragile thing. To cope with their ills, man has always needed a science that could penetrate to where the natural sciences cannot, into the universe of man's mind. F.G. Alexander That's just the first chapter of the book Massive Melancholy, and if you ask if the man was a Christian, the two books he recommends most Written by pastors, or spiritual depression by Doctor Lloyd Jones, and lifting up for the downcast by William Bridges. But I return to Archibald Alexander. The only subject which I have in view in introducing this subject is to inquire what connection there is between real experimental religion and melancholy. But I must in the first place endeavor to remove a prevalent prejudice that in all religious persons there is a strong tendency to melancholy. Indeed, there are not a few who confound these two things so completely that they have no other idea of becoming religious than sinking into a state of perpetual gloom. Such persons as these are so far removed from all just views of the nature of religion that I shall not attempt at present to correct their errors. There are others who entertain the opinion that deep religious impressions tend to produce that state of mind called melancholy, and not only so, but they suppose that in many cases insanity is a consequence of highly raised religious affections. The fact cannot be denied that religion is often the subject which dwells on the minds of both the melancholy and the insane, but I am of opinion that we are here in danger of reversing the order of nature and putting the effect in the place of the cause, Religion does not produce melancholy, but melancholy turns the thoughts to religion. Persons of a melancholy temperament seize on such ideas as are most awful and which furnish the greatest opportunity of indulging despondency and despair. Sometimes, however, it is not religion which occupies the minds and thoughts of the melancholy, but their own hell, which they imagine without reason to be declining or their estates which they apprehend to be wasting away in abject poverty and beggary stare them in the face. Well, a few of my listeners are wondering if you're melancholy or not. Here's a question you might ask yourself. When there is a social gathering at 8 o'clock, do you show up at 7.30 and wait for everybody else to get there? Or do you show up at 8.01 and announce to everybody, Hello, I'm here! with a big smile on your face. The melancholy... The melancholy person is the one that shows up early, and the sanguine person is the one that shows up a minute late with a big smile on his face because he's kind of the life of the party. The melancholy is the introspective. He is the introvert. He's the one that looks inward, whereas the sanguine is more outward. He is more of the extrovert. He is the one that's more apt to take things lightly. He's the one that is more apt to have, uh, see joy in everything and be happy about everything whereas a melancholy might see the dark sides of things, and so on. A melancholy person is less likely to be deceived about his or her state because they are the ones that will never be satisfied without the highest assurance of their faith reality, whereas a sanguine person might be more easily deceived because they always are looking out and are never apt to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith But that, of course, is not a certain rule. But I share this with you because melancholic people are the ones who are more likely to be introspective and to suffer depression, which they should not have to suffer. William Cooper was a melancholic, and he suffered intense religious depression. And so if you're sanguine in your temperament, if everything is always happy, 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 well, this chapter is not going to have a lot to say to you, but you should pay attention to it anyway so that you can pray for those who are the more introspective and introverted and the ones who are more morbid in their temperament and that you can pray for them that they would have the joy that you usually have and to cause you to look inward yourself once in a while and see are the fruit of the spirits in my own life. But anyway, I go on. Quote, Not unfrequently, this disease alienates the mind entirely from religion. And the unhappy victim of it refuses to attend upon any religious duties or to be present where they are performed. Frequently it assumes a form of monomania or a fixed apprehension in regard to some one thing. The celebrated and excellent William Cooper labored for years under one of the most absurd hallucinations respecting a single point. And in that point his belief, though invincible, was repugnant to the whole of his religious creed. He imagined that he had received from the Almighty a command at a certain time when in a fit of insanity to kill himself. And as a punishment for disobedience, he had forfeited a seat in paradise. And so deep was this impression that he would attend on no religious worship, public or private. And yet at this very time took a lively interest in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. When his judgment was so sound on other matters that such men as John Newton and Thomas Scott were in the habit of consulting with him on all difficult points. The case of this man of piety and genius was used by the enemies of religion and particularly by the enemies of Calvinism and as an argument against the creed which he had embraced whereas his disease was at the worst before he had experienced anything of religion or had embraced the tenets of Calvin. And let it be remembered that it was by turning his attention to the consolations of religion that his excellent physician was successful in restoring his mind to tranquility and comfort And the world will one day learn that, of all the remedies for this malady, the pure doctrines of grace are the most effectual to resuscitate the melancholy mind. This is, in fact, a bodily disease by which a mind is influenced and darkened. Thus it was received by the ancient Greeks, for the term is compounded of two Greek words which signify black bile. How near they were to the truth in assigning the physical cause which produces the disease I leave to others to determine. Kizuas have often erred greatly by referring all such cases to mental or moral causes. It is probable even when the disease is brought on by strong impressions on the mind that by these physical derangement occurs. To reason with a man against the views which arises from melancholy is commonly as inefficacious as reasoning against bodily pain. I have long made this a criterion to ascertain whether the dejection experience was owing to a physical cause, for in that case, argument, though demonstrative, has no effect. Still, such persons should be affectionately conversed with, and their peculiar opinions and views should rarely be contradicted. Cases often occur in which there is a mixture of moral and physical causes, and these should be treated in reference to both sources of their affliction. Melancholy is sometimes hereditary and often constitutional. When such persons are relieved for a while, they are apt to relapse into the same state as did William Cooper. The late excellent and venerable James Hall of North Carolina was of a melancholy temperament, and after finishing his education at Princeton, he fell into a gloomy dejection which interrupted his studies and labors for more than a year. After his restoration, he labored successfully and comfortably in the ministry for many years, even to old age, but at last was overtaken again and entirely overwhelmed by this terrible malady.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.